This, uh, there it is, okay. Uh, uh, we have choir practice Tuesday, the 28th at Gloria's, 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Tuesday, choir practice. Uh, George's daughters have left, uh, but his phone number is, I, I gave you the address there, and the room number I think is 115. Uh, phone number now is 928-614-1642. 928-614-1642. So, we can now get in touch with you. Some of you already have, I know. <coughs> but he's kind of on his own there now. And uh, if we happen to be in St. George or whatever... Nice to drop by and say hi and kind of give him a little company here and there as we can. <clears throat> Is there something else I was... I guess that's about it. We, uh, we made it here, I see, through the mud and so on. It's dried up a little bit. We get a little hope and then it comes down on us again. But you think we got it bad, check California out. <laughs> they got cars floating away and trees and houses down the rivers and so on, and we just get the tail end of it here. So I think in many respects we we can use the moisture this summer, but it gets a little tiresome. Uh, that's okay. Well, let's get back to where we left off last week <clears throat> discussing fruits and bearing much fruit is really underneath the uh, title or the main subject for this, that we bear much fruit. And we've gone through quite a few different scriptures about fruit and righteousness, trying to get a little handle on and perhaps define what Christ means by that. So, we'll go into some more scriptures today and perhaps find some good conclusions. Let's start in Acts 14. Uh, the unbelieving Jews were around and Paul and a couple of the other ministers with him. And they saw things happening where uh, healings occurred, and they began to worship, as we see down in verse uh, 12, they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. So they were likening these ministers of God to their false gods. And I imagine Paul and Barnabas and... <laughs> We're pretty frustrated by that, being called after a Greek god. And they wanted the apostles to uh, to do animal sacrifices for them. Verse 14, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? 
We also are men of like passions with you, and preach to you that you should turn from these vanities to the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. We're here trying to get you away from Mercury and Jupiter and Atlas and all these people, or not people, but demons, I suspect, and turn to God. So they rent their clothes. They were very upset by it. You're, you're getting exactly the opposite message than what we're trying to bring you. So what were they trying to do? Produce some fruits among these Gentiles to cause them to turn from idolatry and the things that they were worshiping and worship the true God, which he expresses very clearly there. Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. God allowed people to do their own thing. But he was bringing a new message through these men that there was a different way to do things than the way they had always done them. So we see here that God allowed all of these things. And you and I understand that scripture in terms of uh, this isn't the only day of salvation. Uh, we know about the millennium, the great white throne judgment, and that men will have their opportunity when God is ready for them to do it. And he had, and God is always of his word, he had allowed Satan to rule down here for a set amount of time. And man to rule. Six days you do your thing, one day is the Sabbath, do my thing. Not that he meant we shouldn't obey him through the six days, but he allotted six days to man and one day specifically to him uh, to be set aside as holy and to be kept as holy. Uh, our own thoughts, our own ways, our own entertainments, uh, we don't do on the Sabbath. Uh, we can do those things during the week if they be righteous things. But he's allowed people to go their own way, and here was a wonderful opportunity for these people to get rid of their gods and worship the true God. And that's, of course, what Paul and Barnabas had traveled there for and gone through, who knows, uh, rain, hail, sleet, snow, uh, to get there and to teach them. And then they ran into this who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now he's talking about spiritual qualities here, not necessarily physical, uh, your heart doesn't eat food. Uh, your tummy doesn't necessarily have an emotion of gladness. Those are our minds, our hearts, our emotions he's talking about. And they'd had rain. They'd had food. They were still alive and eating. But they hadn't had the food of God. They hadn't had the bread of life or the water of life. And Christ left those with the disciples to be spread to others. So he left behind a legacy of feeding people the things they needed. 
What is fruit? Fruit is something you eat. It sustains you. It strengthens you. It helps you. So, God gave those things from heaven for them. There's a good example of a way that the fruit of God can be demonstrated or shown and used. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Here I'm going down to the 20s. 29, here he was doing the Passover, which is coming up very shortly now. And in administering, he said, But I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, he could drink wine. He did drink wine. He had been drinking wine with them through his physical life. Uh, We understand that. The Protestants don't, most of them. But nonetheless, he had used wine. And he said, I'm not going to do that again. He didn't tell us we couldn't. didn't tell us we shouldn't. He just says, I will not drink it again until I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. Now, wine is the fruit of the grape. Uh, And God expects us to produce fruit. And he says those who don't produce fruit, as we read in John 15, are cut off from the vine and wither and die and have no use. Um, they get burned up, forgotten. There has to be fruit produced. And I think it's very interesting that he used wine here because it represented his blood. And his blood is there to cause forgiveness so that we might be a part of his kingdom. Without his blood to forgive our sins, without his death, we'll not be in his kingdom. So, The fruit of the vine here, then, is represented as something, a symbol, if you will, of becoming a part of the kingdom of God. He had produced the best fruit of the vine. His body, his blood, was all poured out on the ground that we might live. Now, there's no higher level of fruit producing than what Christ himself produced. He always sets an example for us. I think using the grape as it's used throughout the Bible is one of the highest forms of recognizing the kind of fruit that needs to be produced for us to be in the kingdom of God. He uses it prominently. And then he uses himself as an example. I died, and my blood was so important that I'm going to cease. And he just said this at Passover. I'm going to cease imbibing of it until you are in my kingdom. Until my death, which was coming the next day, until my death has caused you to be in the kingdom of God, eternal and immortal. There's great meaning here for us. He didn't just swear off wine just 
flippantly or for no reason. His blood represents wine. And we take just a little bit at the Passover service to be a type of his blood. So, access to the kingdom of God is not done without the blood of Christ. That's bottom line. Can't be there without it. Because we would all die of our own sins. So, that was the reason that he said, I'll not take it anymore until it has produced fruit. The fruit of everlasting life. Once the mystery of God is solved and we become immortal and eternal, then we will joyfully have not a little bitty bit of wine with him. We'll probably have a nice glass full at the wedding supper because the fruit of his wife has now been eaten. It has now been imbibed of. We are at that point spirit. And the meaning has been fulfilled. So here he had just left a witness to those Gentiles there in Acts 14. And here he tells the disciples, this is important. This is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And it remains there as a symbol today and will until we're in the kingdom of God. Now let's go to Mark 4. Pick it up in verse 26. And he said, well, let's go to 25 first. For he that has, to him shall be given. And he that has not, from him shall be taken away what he has. He's telling us here that we are to be the light of the world, a candle, a candlestick with a candle in it, so nothing's hid. And uh, he said, take heed what you hear in verse 24, with what measure you give. It shall be measured or given to you. And you that hear shall more be given. So, we have to produce fruit. Remember about the grapevine. He said, if it bears fruit, wonderful. And then he'll prune it so it brings forth even more. The next year, it can be even more fruitful. And he is going to give us reward based on what we do with others. Meet it out. We don't use that word necessarily much in the English language anymore, but that, that which you give, that which you produce and help others with, that's going to be measured, and he will give you your measure back. Whatever you're willing to give, he's willing to give to you. If you're willing to give more, he's willing to give more. So he rewards us. The kingdom of God and immortality is not based on our works or our giving necessarily. It's based on forgiveness and mercy and grace and faith. But our reward, what he gives us as a spirit being, is going to be are uh, given according to what we have given out to others. That's only fair, isn't it? You gotta, it's a fair deal if everybody comes out happy. I give you this much, you give me this much back, okay, we're both happy. But if it's too one-sided, then that doesn't work too well. 
doesn't build relationships properly. So, he just says it very clearly, your reward. Uh, there's 144,000 seats up there uh, as bride's chairs. And where will you be placed? Well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, some of those people, Moses, I suspect are going to be in pretty close to the throne. Uh, the rest of us can be fighting for the 144,998 and 99th chair, maybe. Uh, and he tells them, don't vaunt yourself. If you're invited to a feast, take the furthest chair away. And if they look around and say, where's so-and-so? Let's move him up here. That's pretty nice. Everybody says, oh, he got promoted. Wow. But if you take the high chair or near the front, and they called somebody from back down here and say, oh, I need him up here by me. You go down there. That's a whole different approach and feeling and attitude as you walk to the rear than it is when you walk to the front. So just go back there in the first place. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. If you're the bride of Christ, you're the bride of Christ. Don't be fighting over the 103rd chair, whichever one you picked out, you thought where you ought to be. No, he will decide where he wants us. And part of that will be in what kind of fruit we provide for others. Bear much fruit. And he said, so is the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to explain what we've just been talking about. As if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep, and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knows not how. You watch it this morning, you watch it tomorrow morning, and it's bigger, and you don't know how that happened, but it did. For the earth brings forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. It just happens. It, it's a motion that God has set there. And he understands how it grows, but we don't. We just plant it and water it and watch it. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest is come. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? All right, we've established that plants grow and they produce corn or whatever type plants they are. He uses a mustard seed here. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. Mustard seeds are very small. Uh, corn seeds are a lot bigger. But he uses something small here. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out great branches, so many that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And in many such parables spoke he the word to them as they were able to hear it. A lot of people aren't able to understand the parable. It says, but without a parable spoke he not to them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. 
So he takes us. How much were we worth spiritually? How big a how big a seed were we? How important were we? Well, he takes a real small one, uses a mustard seed to show that it can become a huge tree. I don't know what kind of mustard that is. Maybe it's not the kind we use out of our uh, yellow bottle, but uh, one that produced a tree so that it can be of use to the fowls of the air. It grew big and is now useful. As a little seed, it wasn't worth anything. So he plants a small seed of his spirit in us, and he expects it to grow and grow until it produces much and is usable and useful. That's what he expects of us. Why would he give that if that were not the case? Uh, Mark 11 Mark 11. And here let's go down about verse 11. Oh, wait a minute. Is that the one I want? That's not the one I want. Oh, I'm in 10. Maybe that'll make a difference. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple... And when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out into Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Uh, And Jesus answered and said to it, No man eat fruit of you hereafter forever. And his disciples heard of it, or heard it. Uh, And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. So he went on with life, but he left an example there, and it sounds like pretty rough. I think I mentioned this last week uh, in passing, even though I didn't turn to it. Uh, he expected a tree to produce fruit, and he used this one as an example to the disciples. They were the only ones there that they need to produce fruit, or they'll wither and die. Same thing he told them there in John 15 about being connected to. The vine. We'll not necessarily discuss whether it was a fit of temper or he had misjudged when the fig ought to be there or whatever. Uh, he expected it, obviously, but maybe it was just a little bit early and they weren't quite right yet. You know, it, uh, it varies depending on where a tree is. If it's at a lower elevation, it'll produce earlier. Uh, you'll notice you drive from here to Hurricane, you already see trees blooming. You, won't, you don't see that until weeks later here because we're a couple thousand feet higher. So, nevertheless, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the point he was making to them is anything that doesn't produce is forgotten about. 
wanted to make a point there too that that fig tree is not like, let's say, a pine tree. A pine tree is not expected to produce uh, fruit for people to eat. There are different kinds of trees. There are fruit trees and they're just plain old trees. They have a function, don't get me wrong. But a fruit tree pictures the kingdom of God in many respects in that it is to produce something beyond itself for somebody else. Even a pine tree does that. They have uh, little pine nuts and various things that the squirrel eat. A lot of trees produce acorns or things that different birds or animals eat. So they do produce something that is beyond themselves. But particularly for fruit trees, God wants them to produce fruit for others and for him. So he uses different kinds, grapes, fig trees, whatever, to show that. Even in the Garden of Eden, there was one tree there that produced the fruit that would give life eternal. And when they took of the tree of good and evil, uh, he did not want them to live eternally as they had become. As we are today, he he does not want us to live eternally like this. I don't want to live eternally like this, thank you. Uh, Life is too hard. Life is too difficult. It has too many problems. And we're held to a standard that we're to keep up with, and yet we have great difficulty doing it. And life is difficult here on this earth. And God told us, right after they ate that wrong fruit, that it would be this way. You had it so good. You never had it so good. It's never been so good. Now you ate that, and you understand a lot of things about Satan that you didn't know. And your nature now is like his because you did that. So open your eyes to that. So we've suffered as people ever since. All nations, all peoples around the world, ever since, have had difficult lives. Just because of one disobedience that led to another disobedience, that led to another one, and everybody's involved. We caused our own problems with Satan's help. And he's always there to help us have problems. Uh, Always. But we are to produce things good for others and for God. Let's go to uh, Hebrews 12. Now, I just mentioned that life is full of vicissitudes. It's full of troubles, trials, difficulties, day by day by day. But here in chapter 12, he had just gone through and showed a list of people who have made it into the kingdom of God. We call it the uh, faith chapter, Hebrews 11. And it was through faith that all these different people followed God instead of the way they wanted to go. Not perfectly. Uh, You look down the list, and everybody there had problems of one kind or another. But through the Father and the Son, they overcame and had faith. 
and they're going to be in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so he says in chapter 12 then, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us uh, run with patience the race that is set before us. So, we have witnesses, we have people that God can name and did name, who have made it. They're going to be in the kingdom of God. He doesn't ever mention anyone who is not going to be. Anywhere in the Bible, people have speculated that Esau and perhaps Judas uh, would be some who would go in the lake of fire and not be in the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that. Uh, remember, after the Passover, until Pentecost, even the disciples themselves were not converted. And Christ even said, Peter, when you are converted, feed my sheep. When you are converted. So, he wasn't converted at that Passover. Nor were the others. Nor was Judas. Uh, and he died right afterward, so he never was converted. And therefore, I don't think we can say he won't have a part of the kingdom of God. He died a physical death right away. But Judas never understood, did he? No. Even Peter and James and John didn't really understand until they received the Holy Spirit later. God's Spirit provided the fruit of conversion to them later on. And very frequently through the Scriptures as he's teaching them, they didn't get it. They didn't understand something. And he would make a comment about it. You know, you, you just, you're not hearing, you're not seeing, you're not understanding. And they didn't because their mind had not been opened by his spirit to the point of conversion. It had been opened a bit so that they could kind of begin to see a few things. Enough that they could believe he was the son of God. Sort of. But not fully. Even when he died... <laughs> yep, guess we better go fishing. Time to get out of here. This is over. They just didn't get it. Judas didn't. And Esau didn't either. Now, he gave up his birthright for a bowl of red soup. What's your bowl of red soup? What thing? What is it? Where is it? Is there anything that you would give up your birthright in the kingdom of God, your adoption into his family, his kingdom? Is there anything you want so badly in this life that you would give up eternity for? What's your bowl of lentil stew? What's your bowl of red soup? You might look at things and say, well, I'm tempted here, 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 and there. And if I partake of this, 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 and this, I'm giving up eternal life for that, whatever it might be. His was a bowl of soup when he was hungry. What's yours? Where's the level? What's your bowl of red soup? What would you give up the kingdom of God for? Now, in your mind, you'd say, oh, no, I wouldn't give up the kingdom of God for anything. But... If we have sin and we're living in sin, 
then we are in the process of giving up the kingdom of God for whatever that might be. Bowl of red soup seems like a pretty low price. But anything we do contrary to the law of God might be our bowl of soup. We put Esau down for giving up his birthright so cheaply. And this chapter gets into that, about how he wanted that soup. And he wanted it so bad, I'll give up my birthright. What good is that going to do me if I'm dead anyway? I'm starving to death here. Give me some soup. You can have my birthright. Boy, did he live to regret that one. He gave up all the blessings that Jacob inherited for just a bowl of soup when he was hungry. He was a hunter. Why didn't he shoot a deer and eat it? But apparently on that trip, he didn't get it again. He came home hungry. We have this cloud of witnesses. So we have to run with patience the race that is set before us. We'll talk about patience again in a little bit. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He was looking forward to being back in his Father's kingdom, and the joy he knew would come when that occurred. He had been there. He had been with the angels, the four, 24 elders. He had been with the heavenly choir. He had been with his Father. And he remembered the way things were, and he looked forward to going back to that with joy. And that joy of looking to the future made him able to pay the price that he paid. He had to have something beyond looking at himself and saying, Can I take this? Should I take this? Should I fight? No. I want to be in the kingdom of God, and that brings such joy to my heart that I'm going to go through with this. So here we have patience. What's patience? It's a fruit of God's Spirit. He had joy. That also is a fruit of God's Spirit. He had God's Spirit. And those fruits that are named were part of his character. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. We are to look to Christ continually as an example of someone who put the kingdom of God ahead of any comfort on this earth. Whatever comfort that might be. Now that leaves you a wide gamut of possibilities that go far beyond a bowl of lentil soup. Because we come across many, many things in our lives that are there that could make us be weary, make us give up, faint in your minds, lose track, lose sight, lose vision of where we're headed, and therefore we give in too easily. Uh, you have to wait in patience. Because it is coming. And you don't have to wait more than 70, 80, 90 years on this earth, and it'll be there. Think about those poor buggers that lived in Adam's day. 
thousand years they had to live as a human being and all that you and I go through in what little time we have here. God said, that's just too long. <laughs> that is too long. And then he cut it to 500 years. Then he cut it to about two. And finally he said, 70 20. <laughs> if you live beyond that, good luck to you. That's <laughs> kind of the way he put it. If by reason of strength you live beyond that, okay. But basically 70 years, somewhere under 100, and that's about it for us. That's enough. You can, you can experience a lot of things in 70, 80 years, can't you? Boy, you can. Consider him. Don't give up. You've not yet resisted to blood striving against sin. Now, some people have said, well, that means you just, you pray so hard that your sweat becomes blood. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think what it's saying is, he resisted against temptation to sin, temptation to give up, temptation to walk away. You know, he walked away from hordes of people at times, great multitudes, and he would just disappear. Where did he go? He's gone. How did he do that? He could have done that, but he was died to regret it. Not lived to regret it, died to regret it. When he says, you've not resisted unto blood, we haven't resisted to the point that Christ did, is what he's saying. He resisted up to the point where he allowed himself to be killed and said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Now, that's an incredible attitude. I'm going to die, they're about to kill me, they're going to torture me unbelievably, and then I'm going to die. And he resisted giving up. He resisted having a bad attitude and said, forgive them. Now, he expects us to put up that kind of resistance. Many people are going to face that shortly in great tribulation. Because many who are converted, somewhat converted, partially converted, three-fourths converted, whatever, are going to be left behind in the tribulation, and Satan and the beast and false prophets are going to know who the Christ followers and the Sabbath keepers and the feast keepers are. That'll be no great mystery. It won't be hard to find. And if they have any of the light of God, Satan can see it from way off. They're going to have to resist unto blood. Because if they won't deny Christ, they will be killed. So Paul is saying, you haven't resisted to the point Christ did, but some are going to have to. Now the apostles did. They resisted going Satan's way until they were crucified, most of them. So they resisted unto blood. If these people he's writing to here have not gone that far yet, but some will. Some have and some will. And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to children. My son, despise not you the chastening of the eternal, nor faint when you are reduced of him. 
for whom the eternal love he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives and prunes them as well. So, he's the father who loves his children. And he loves them to the point that he does not let them get away with what they want. He chastens them for a purpose. So that they change their attitudes, so that they change their way of doing things. That's what conversion is all about. That's what a parent with a little child is doing, is converting his child from being a little child, spoiled, rotten, selfish, into a mature human being who has learned not to be spoiled and selfish and rotten. That's your goal as a parent. God's goal as our Father is to get us to be like He is. So, He says if He doesn't chasten you, you aren't His son. Uh, verse 8. If you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Now, he doesn't chasten everybody. says so right there, really. And Christ even told the Pharisees, you think you worship the Father in heaven, but you are of your father, the devil. So he actually told those people, your father is the devil. Now, we understand that God created man, and man then was a son, in that sense, of God, a creation of God. So, we had all been that. Those Pharisees had been born sons of God. But they chose a different parent. That's the point. They chose Satan as the one to follow. So Christ says, well, there was your real father, but you repudiated him, you departed from him, and you brought forth the fruits of the devil himself. Therefore, to whom you obey, that is your father. So he doesn't claim people who will not follow him as his sons today. In a larger sense, yes, they are, and yes, they will repent and shall be, but he says right now they're in the state of a bastard. Now wouldn't you put the prodigal son in that state? What was his father thinking of him? He still loved him. He still cared about him. But the son had said, I want to go a different way. You're my father and I don't like the way you treat me. I want a new father. So he gave him his inheritance, that's what a father does, gives his son his inheritance, and sent him away. So when he receives that, that inheritance, he no longer was the son of that father in any real sense, because he chose a different one. In that sense, he was a bastard from his father's house. No father anymore. Who was his father? Wine, women, and song. And Satan. That was it. When he repented and came back, he was accepted as the son again because he was acting like one. And we're not, if we've been called and adopted into the kingdom of God, 
He wants us to be sons. And he will chasten us and punish us in order to keep us there, to straighten us out. And he says, otherwise you're a spiritual bastard. But most people on the earth today are spiritual bastards. They worship their father, the devil. All the religions, western, eastern, whatever kind, if they're not following Christ and his words in this book, they're spiritual bastards. And they have to be called and adopted as sons because they have left their natural father, no longer there, and adopted into Satan's world. And you've got to come out of that and be adopted into the family of God. And he gives us adoption. That's scripture. Because he didn't consider us part of his family. All these people out here that are so-called Christians think they're in the family of God. And they're not. Because they don't obey him. They don't follow him. They give him lip service, but they don't do what he says. So he does this to us. Verse 10, For they verily for a few days chastened us, our physical parents, after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Parents just want an obedient child. God wants us to be holy. And as parents too, once we understand, we would like for our children to grow up and be holy, wouldn't we? Because we understand the spiritual. So he says then, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. Now he took joy in that he was going to be in his father's kingdom, but he wasn't being chastened when he died for his sins. He was dying for our sins. And now he wants to save us out of sin. So it's not peaceable fruit of righteousness. It doesn't seem joyous, but grievous. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. So when God comes down on us, he's not trying to destroy us. We've been called. We've been given his spirit. We've been adopted into his family. All he wants us to do is straighten up and yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness. That's what he wants from us. So, he says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is uh, lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. you got a broken leg and it's crooked, you're going to walk, if you walk at all, off the wrong direction. You've got to be healed. You've got to be fixed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the eternal. And don't let any root of bitterness come up inside you. It doesn't take much. Just a small root of something that you feel offended about, you feel you were treated unfairly about, uh, the minister didn't speak to you, he walked by. It's not big, it's just a little 
thought. But then somebody else does something to you, and you think, well, they're not being like God. They should have treated me different than that. And you begin to get upset. You begin to be frustrated. You begin to be offended. And those attitudes are what lead to bitterness. And once bitterness sets in, it's almost impossible to overcome. Because you feel, you feel that you've been so wronged, and it just builds and builds and builds. How is it with Esau? He goes on to talk to him. He says, don't become like Esau. He let that thing there about that soup lead him into such a vicious, wretched, bitter attitude that he could not get over it. It grew. It festered. It swelled up inside him. He didn't get rid of it. He didn't say, well, I messed that one up. <laughs> I've lost my birthright. But I'm still a human being. There's still a God in heaven. And I ought to follow God's way regardless of whether I have my physical birthright or not. He, could, he, he sought God. He tried to find God. He tried to get over his attitude. He couldn't do it. Of course, he did not have the Spirit of God either. He had not been converted. This was just a physical thing. His physical birthright. So I don't think you could say Esau has lost his chance at salvation because he let a physical thing ruin his life. Even though he tried to get over it, sought it carefully with tears, it had been with him and gotten so big and dominated his thinking to the point he just couldn't do anything about it. As Jacob prospered, as Jacob received the inheritance, it just made him worse. At first it was just a thought. All of that which will be isn't going to be mine. And then he saw all that happening, and oh my, did he get angry. Well, God said, don't be like that. Follow peace with all men. No root of bitterness, no offense, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. As we sin, as we have bad attitudes, we can defile others with those attitudes. If they're worldly attitudes, sinful attitudes, uh, the works of the flesh, hate, anger, jealousy, all those things that Galatians talks about, those can affect other people. Because if they're around you, they have human nature too. And their human nature is the same as everybody else's human nature. And the things of Satan and the way he thinks just come naturally to us. And if we're around it, it affects us. And do you want to be defiling other people with a bad attitude? Or would you rather be in a peaceable, helpful, kind, loving attitude and people be influenced by that? There's precious little of it in this earth, in this world. So we need to find it among the people of God. That's what we need to be working on. Don't become bitter.
about anything, because it can keep you out of the kingdom of God. Hebrews 13, and here down about verse 15. Speaking of Christ, by Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanksgiving to His name. The fruit of our lips is thanksgiving to God and seeking Him with our mouths, with our words. Remember we saw in Bible study that uh, there in the book of Revelation that the prayers of the saints are like a container of sweet things to God. He treasures our prayers. He keeps them. You know, you set something on the dresser or the hearth or something, and maybe it has things in there that are important or precious to you. Maybe you collect seashells. Maybe you, whatever, flowers, whatever it might be. Those things are important to you, so you put them in something and keep them there as a memory, as an admiration, as something that you look to, that you decorate your house with, because it's important to you. Could be anything. I have different heads of animals on my walls. You know what I do when I sit down and I see all that? I think of all the good places, the wonderful places that God has allowed me to be. I can remember the forest, the mountain, the river, where that one came from. I can remember how it came. And some of them, I can't help but believe with all my heart, were actually gifts of God because of the way that it happened and when it happened and how. It wasn't something I did. It's something that came as a gift from God. So, I had a head mount. I put it up there to remember that. Some people look at it and say, this is kind of gruesome, all these dead heads up here and all these glass eyes looking at me. I don't see them that way. I see them as something from the past where I was blessed. And I wanted to keep a memento of that. God does that with our prayers. Same thing. says it right there in Scripture. That that vial carried the prayers, the incense of the prayers of, of his saints. He loves the smell of our prayers. Well, a lot of our prayers. <laughs> I, think, I think there are some of them that don't make the vase, uh, but uh, a lot of them do. And he treasures those, and he's going to use them in the future. So he's saying here, uh, where was I now? Verse 15. To offer the sacrifice of praise and to give thanks to his name. And that kind of prayer, he's going to treasure. He's going to keep it. It doesn't just go into the ceiling and be done. It goes through the ceiling and up to the Father and the Son in heaven. And they say, wow, that's, that's a sweet smell to my nose. And I'm going to put it in storage. Goes in the vial. That's a good one. Put it in there. How many of your prayers go in that vial, and how many of them does he say, boy, I hope they straighten up soon. That one didn't smell too good. Uh, I don't know. That's, I'm just 
talking here. Because sometimes we go with a good attitude, sometimes with a bad attitude. And maybe even the bad attitude we can fix during the prayer. And then it has a sweet savor by the time it's done. Maybe not when it started, but by the time it's done. Let's go to James 3. It's right here handy. Down to about verse 18. Well, let's, uh, let's go up a little bit. Uh, the things of this world, he says up in verse 12, no fountain both yields salt water and fresh. Uh, if you get salt in it, it's all salty. And he says that in the <coughs> Sermon on the Mount. You can't serve two masters. You'll love one and forsake the other. The principle then being, you need to be a sweet fountain, not have salt water in there. Who is the wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conduct, should be translated, his works with meekness of wisdom. And if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. It's easy to deceive ourselves and we think that our bad attitude, whatever it might be, is justified. It's not. He said, don't offend anybody and don't be offended by anybody. He makes that very, very clear. So if you have a bad attitude and you haven't gotten rid of it by sundown, it's not of God. It's the wrong kind of attitude. And it needs to be repented of. We can't hold it. Show a good conduct with meekness and wisdom. But if there's bitter envying and strife in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. Don't tell you your attitude's Tell yourself your attitude is okay when it's not. Don't deceive yourself. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Man's way of looking at things and man's attitudes. For where envying and strife is, there is no confusion. There is confusion and every evil work. That's just human nature raw. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated. How easy to be entreated are we? <coughs> if you have a fault, a weakness, a problem, made a mistake, whatever, and somebody approaches you, how easy is it to guide you, correct you, uh, give you some advice. Most of us just don't want to hear that. Somebody comes to us and starts telling us some problem we might have. We don't want to hear it. We get our defenses up so fast. We get an attitude. We get offended so easily. Who are you to correct me? Anybody has a right to we're brothers and sisters. We're all the children of God. We all have the right to confront each other if we see something 
that we think is amiss and entreat. Not necessarily chew out, not get all over, but to entreat. You know, I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. Uh, I love you dearly, but I see something, I think, that could be holding you back in your growth. And here it is. And, boy, can we get upset and uptight and offended because somebody thinks we're not perfect. Well, we know we're not. We know we have faults and problems. But we don't want them pointed out. And we don't think anybody else ought to know what they are. And so, we become very private about our lives. Very private. Don't want anybody to know anything about us because they might see something wrong. And we want to have this illusion or delusion that we're okay. And even though we know better, we don't want anybody else to know that. Now, in a godly way, we are to be open. We are to be willing to discuss Scripture, our lives, how we might need some help with this or some help with that. It says right here in the book of James, we confess to each other. Now, he's talking about here specifically of a, a physical deficiency or problem or health issue. That we should tell each other and then pray for each other. I've, I've seen people who've taken that and said, oh, I'm supposed to confess all. So they go around each church member tell them, well, I'm a homosexual or I'm committing adultery on every Tuesday and Thursday. And, you know, here it comes to everybody confessing their faults. Well, they misinterpreted what this is talking about. They don't need to discuss their sins. You don't need to discuss their sins. God tells us, in fact, that He blesses us and is approves when we do not discuss it. Keep our mouths shut about it and speak those things which are good. But there is perhaps a time when we say, oh boy, I've been having trouble with this. Uh, can you help me? <laughs> can you give me some advice from the Scripture that will help me overcome it is what it is? I mean, there are times when Christians should be able to be heart-to-heart -heart with each other and discuss something that they might need some help with. But that doesn't mean we're just going around confessing to everybody every sin we ever had. God wants them gone. He wants them forgiven under the blood of Christ and forgotten about. So bringing up something somebody was or did 5, 10, 15, 50 years ago is not fair. It's not right. That which is past is past. It's gone. God forgives it on the blood of Christ. Who are you to keep it alive? You're working against Christ when you remember somebody's sin from whenever. He's working to get rid of sin, not sweep it under the carpet. I don't mean it that way. They saw the man who was living with his mother-in-law there in Corinth. They weren't just to say, oh, well, it's okay. No, it was out where everybody knew it, everybody saw it, and they did nothing about it. So Paul had to intervene and say, hey, this can't be, put the man out. 
He's not even to be there with you. And then when he repented and stopped the sinning, stopped the problem, then they had a carnal human attitude about him, and he says, now you got to get rid of your other carnal human attitude now and be forgiving and accepting. So the object is to be like God. That's the object. And if something is in the way of that, we deal with it. If it's in the past and it's gotten out of the way, why is it ever an issue? Why would you bring it up? To hurt. To put down. To make you feel better than whoever it is because of what they did or did not do years ago. It's not fair. Husbands and wives should not do it. But boy, we have memories like elephants. We have a, have a little squabble about something here today that needs to be resolved. And all of a sudden, <laughs> here it goes back through the decades. And we bring it all back up and rehearse it again. Does it help? Nah, not so you'd notice. It just makes everybody madder and more frustrated. It's not fair. If God forgave it, it's done. It's forgotten. You better than God? You think you ought to remember something that he said, don't remember? Mm-mm. Isn't fair. Deal with today's problem, not yesterday's. Now, if it's the same problem, it hasn't been overcome and still needs to be worked with, it's a little different deal. But let's deal with it as it is today, not rehearse all the past. That does no good. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, humble in other words, meek, not defensive, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Peace is a rare commodity. And the fruit of righteousness comes when people can make peace. They sow peace, like you sow a seed. And peace grows from that. It produces peace. That's a good plant, one that does that. Let's go to James 5. No, let's don't. Uh, I need to wrap this up here a little bit. Let's go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. We've been headed here for a long time. We just haven't got here. Now we're going there. Now here in chapter 5, you get down to uh, verse 17. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. We are flesh, and we have all kinds of human wishes, desires, dreams, and so on. And Satan and human nature are contrary to God's nature. They fight against each other. You feel it, don't you? The war that goes on the spirit against the flesh. 
The flesh says do this. The flesh suggests something else. The flesh wants to go the way of flesh and things that would please the flesh. The spirit wants to do things in a different way that would cause peace everywhere. But he lays it out here that we're not to fulfill the lust of the flesh, it lusts against the spirit. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. <laughs> Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Because there was this war going on in there, and too often the flesh wins out. That's just the way it is. Because we are physical and human, and to a great degree carnal. So then he goes on to say, if you're led of the Spirit, you are not under the penalty of the law. And then he wants us to know what things it, it is that we are to be resisting, and these are things that human nature essentially does not want to resist. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lawlessness, idolatry, witchcraft, following Satan, hatred, <laughs> living at variance with others, uh, emulations or seditions, wrath, strife, uh, seditions, heresies, murders, uh, drunkenness, over-partying, and such like. All kinds of things that fit those categories. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're doing the things listed there, you won't be in the kingdom of God. You've got to overcome them. You've got to resist them. Fight against them. Because those are the things in your nature that are just there. Evil and deceitful to the core. And you have to resist them and fight against them and do what God wants. Because it will give you a better life. Now humans think that those things we just mentioned will make them happy. They'll give them a better life. Uh, no, they won't. Now, that doesn't mean that sin is not fun. He said we have to be careful and not follow those things of sin which give temporary pleasure. And the things that we just read about up there in various ways can give pleasure to a human being. But it's not a long-lasting pleasure. You get past having fun and then you reap the results of what you've done. Those things wind up in divorce. They wind up in murder. They wind up in eternal hatred. Not eternal, but lifetime hatred. Uh, you steal from a bank. You feel rich. And then you sit in a jail cell without the money for X number of years. You had fun stealing it. Oh, what a high that was. Robbed the bank. Got away with it. Didn't get caught. Here we go. And then somehow you get caught, and it's not so much fun anymore. It's just the way the human ways of the flesh work. Now let me ask you a question. We've probably been asked this 
through life, maybe as children, maybe later. If you were an animal, what kind of animal would you want to be? So we think about it, and people come up with all kinds of answers of what kind of animal they'd want to be. Some of them want to be a lion. Some of them would want to be a sheep, a lamb. You can pick all kinds of different things of what animals you might like to be like. Would God want you to be a lion, (laughs) ripping and tearing? Uh, He refers to his people as lambs, so that might be a pretty good choice to be a lamb. So then what do you do? You study about lambs, or you raise lambs, and you learn about sheep and how they react, what they do. Some of it's good, some of it isn't so good always. I've had them. Uh, But they don't tear me up when I go into the sheep pen like a lion would. Now you get an old lamb once in a while, it gets kind of pushy, but uh, you, you can deal with it. But the lambs of God are far more gentle than a lion, if you put it that way. People ask you what kind of tree you want to be. Well, I want to be an oak tree. They're strong and they grow big and they last a long time. I want to be a redwood. They get really tall and they smell good and they live a long, long time and their wood doesn't rot and it's beautiful and it smells good. I'd like to be a redwood if I was going to be a tree. You can name all kinds of trees you might rather be like if that's what you happen to be. Well, God says that the kind of animal that his people are likened to is lambs, sheep, and the qualities that they have, the good qualities. And he tells us that we ought to be trees. One analogy says we ought to be a vine and produce fruit for others and toward his kingdom. What kind of tree would you want to be? Now, let's take this to a spiritual level. Somebody might be, want to be an orange tree or an apricot tree or, you know, whatever they might name that they like the fruit of. So, I'd like to be one of those. Now, what kind of tree would God want you to be? Because he tells us, and we've been discussing it, that we need to produce fruits. Without producing fruit, we can't be part of the kingdom of God. Impossible. So, what kind of tree do you want to be? We just read some scriptures which ought to give us some clues. How about the fruit of the Spirit? We need to produce the fruit of the Spirit. That's the kind of fruit he wants, is the fruit of his Spirit, not the Spirit of Satan, not the Spirit of man, but the Spirit of God. Well, when you get right down to it then, what does a tree of God produce? <laughs> the fruit of the Spirit is love. How many of you thought you'd like to be a love tree? You'd produce your branches, your life, love. So that when somebody comes and they get to know you or around you, they can take some love from you because that's what you have. That's what you produce. You're a love tree. 
God's love. I'm not talking about the hippie movement in the 60s with the sex tree. I'm talking about love, God's love. How about a joy tree? You could be a joy tree. Somebody comes around you, you're full of joy. You have a goal, you have a purpose in life, the kingdom of God. And you're so joyful about it, as Christ was, we read, remember? He had joy in what he would become. So, we're joyful. We're not dour. We're not angry. We're not bitter. We're not mean. We're not selfish. We're full of joy. What if somebody came up to you, like Christ did the fig tree, and they saw joy, and they could pluck some of that and put it in their heart and take it home with them? That's a pretty good tree, a joy tree. You know, there are times when every one of us needs a joy tree. There are a lot of times when we get frustrated, depressed, upset, whatever. We could use some joy in our lives. What if people ran into you and they just felt better? They had a certain sense of joy that came from being around you. Now, there's the fruit of the Spirit of God that someone could take away and benefit from. They might have been dour, upset, depressed. They saw you, they talked to you, and they felt better. That'd be a pretty good tree, wouldn't it? Would you like to be a joy tree? I'd rather be a joy tree than an oak tree. Or, you know, peace. How about being a peace tree? Some of them had peace pipes. They'd smoke peace pipes. A little piece of tree with holes in it. How about being a peace tree? So that they come around you, you're around you a bit, they feel more at peace. They feel peaceable. Because you generate feelings of peace instead of feelings of hate or animosity or war or all those works of the flesh. Those are called works of the flesh because when we do those things, they work all kinds of problems. But the fruit of the Spirit is something that is good. A long-suffering tree. Are you one who will suffer long? Do we give up on people real quickly? Or will we suffer along with what they are hoping they get over that? Or do we just write them off? Eh, forget him. Forget her. That's the way they are. I don't want to be around that. But if you are a long-suffering tree, a patient one, that's good. Because maybe that person, whatever their difficulties may be, in time they'll overcome them. You got to overcome, I got to overcome, and they got to overcome. How, how quickly does Christ write us off? He is the long-suffering patience tree. Suffer a long time. Reminds me of the two buzzards sitting in a tree, and here's a cow down in the mud. She got water to drink in front of her, but nothing to eat. Sooner or later, if somebody doesn't pull her out of the mud, she's going to die. And one buzzard's sitting there studying the situation. He says to the other one, 
fully on patience, I'm going to go kill something. I've told that one before. But to me, it was such a graphic thing. I'm not going to be patient. I'm going to have my own solution. A gentleness tree. Can we really say we're gentle? God's Spirit produces gentleness, kindness, gentle. How about a goodness tree? I don't mean the kind where somebody sees us and say, oh my goodness. The kind that produces goodness. There's some, there's some pretty good choices here. How about a faith tree? Christ said he would find very little faith when he returns. Could you be a tree that produces faith? And people can see your faith, see your trust in God, and they become more faithful. They have more faith themselves because they see it in you. That's what Paul used those people in Hebrews 11 for, to show them here's some people that produce faith. And they're going to be in the kingdom of God, so you'll be producing faith as well. Faith tree is a good choice there. Meekness, as opposed to pride, vanity, ego. That's what the people of this world use. I'm proud. I'm proud of you, my son, because you're my son. And pride causes an awful lot of fights because people won't swallow their ego and be meek and humble and walk away or solve the problem. Self-control tree. There's a good one that everybody needs to be produce fruit like that. Against such, there is no law. Now, which one of those trees do you want to be? You want to pick one and be that and produce that? How about, let's go big here. Let's just go big. Go big or go home. How about being all of those? All rolled into one. Go into Romans 11 and it says that God grafts us in. He'll graft the Gentiles in. He's willing to graft anybody in who's willing to serve Him. And when you graft a branch into a tree, it's part of the tree. The roots feed a different kind of branch. So you can have one tree, tree producing two or more different kinds of fruit. Now God, in His capacity and ability, can graft us into the Christ tree. The ultimate tree. The one who produces all these things can be us. So, He's not just a grapevine. He used that example because it's such a good one. But here he's saying we need all of these fruits. And you need to be someone who produces all of these. Not just one of them. Not two of them or three. But all of them. Through the Spirit of God, he can produce through us every one of these qualities. That's what we're here to do. Is produce much fruit. That fruit needs to be good fruit. And it needs to be available to all the fowls of the air, all the peoples of the earth, 
all of our brethren in the church, and it needs to be something that's fruitful to God. Now, what did he call us if we will obey him and be part of his remnant there in Zechariah? The apple of his eye. We produce a fruit that catches his eye, that he likes, that he finds usable, implying there that he wants to pick that fruit and eat of it. I want to be the apple of his eye. Now, there are a lot of apples on a tree. And he could have a tree that produces the kind of apples he wants, and we could all be the apple of his eye. But he tells us to bear much fruit, that the fruitful will be there. The righteous, the holy, the ones that produce these fruits, not the stuff up there we read about the world. You know, I can go and be in one of those trees real fast. It don't take long to produce the works of the flesh. We, we're good at that. We can, oh, human beings are so good at the works of the flesh. It's real easy. But it's hard to put those aside and produce the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what he's told us to do. And bear much fruit. I've read that expression in the Bible many times. <clears throat> I thought, well, I need to produce fruit. But maybe I didn't define it enough. How are you going to produce something that you don't know exactly what it is that you're supposed to be producing? So I wanted to define it better. So we get right down to the nuts and bolts of what he expects us to produce as fruit. And it's real simple here. There's nothing new. It's just maybe we needed to be focused and define it better. That the fruit of, fruit of the Spirit is. Names all these qualities. Well, if that's the fruit of the Spirit, and where's the fruit of the, fruit of the Spirit, then what he names here is what we need to be producing. Let there be no question about what the fruit of the Spirit is. So he started naming them. This is what you are to be. This is what you are to produce. So that anyone coming near you, including God, would see these qualities in you and be themselves encouraged, inspired, strengthened by what they see in you. That's where he wants us to be. We could pray that way. Your morning prayer, your evening prayer. God, help me to love somebody. Help me to be patient with somebody. Help me be meek and not let my pride get a hold of me. Help me be this and this and this. And let me bring joy to somebody's life. That's a prayer you can pray. He's going to stick that one in his vial and remember it because it's wonderful. Two kinds of vials here. Vile is the works of the flesh. V-I-L-E. V-I-A-L is the vase that he uses to put the good stuff in. Send him a lot of good stuff. Send him stuff that smells good and smells sweet to him. The fruits of the Spirit. 